0: Did Jesus rise from the dead? This is the question that is at the heart of Christianity. As Paul said, if Christ has not risen, then our faith is in vain. It really is the central argument for the faith of Christianity. Um, So I'm excited to introduce my guest to you today. His name is Dr. Michael Lycona. He has a Ph.D. in New Testament uh, from the University of Pretoria. hope I'm pronouncing that right. He is a an associate professor in theology at Houston Baptist University, and he's the president of Risen Jesus uh, Ministries. It's a ministry that he runs, um, and he travels and debates uh, skeptics like the well-known skeptic um, Bart Ehrman on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, the historicity of uh, the resurrection and the uh, New Testament. And so um, we had a, a great discussion about the resurrection. He's written a, a great book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus with his co author, Gary Habermas. If you haven't got that, follow the link in the description and get a copy of that. It's, uh, as far as I can tell, one of the best uh, books on the resurrection for sure. I really enjoy it. And, and, and again, it's it's such a vital book and such a vital uh, question and debate topic because if Jesus rose from the dead, then Christianity is true, uh, period. It falls that God exists, that the Bible is God's Word, etc. It really is at the heart of the matter. Of course, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, if you enjoy the episode, if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to like it and subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to us on YouTube, leave a review, all that good stuff. If you want to uh, listen to the bonus segment as well as all of our bonus segments, Uh, Be sure to follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter of our ministry. Thanks so much for joining us, guys, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, hello and welcome to Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and today I am excited to introduce my special guest to you. His name is Dr. Michael Lycona, and he helped uh, co-author the book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, with uh, Gary Habermas. So, Dr. Lycona, how are you doing today, sir?
1: Oh, good, Hayden thank you very much
0: Uh, yeah thank you uh, very much for coming on I'm sure you got a busy schedule and um, I'm very happy to have you on I know we've been trying to uh, schedule this and have you on for a while and I'm really excited Um, the book you authored with uh, Dr. Gary Habermas that I mentioned uh, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus is one of my more uh, favorite books and uh, especially in apologetics. I think the the resurrection is really central to apologetics. If we can get this one, it seems to me that everything else follows upon that. Uh, You know what? I think Paul actually said something about that, something similar to that as well. But uh, yeah. (laughs) So uh, thanks so much uh, for agreeing to do this. Uh, Before we get into the resurrection and and, and all that, if you don't mind uh, introducing yourself to the audience for those who uh, may or may not be uh, familiar with who you are.
1: Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'll be 58 in a couple of months here, and I grew up in Baltimore uh, in a Christian family. I became a Christian at the age of 10. There was a Christian magician that came by at our church one Sunday, and they no pulled kidding. all the Sunday school classes together, and uh, they uh, related uh, the the tricks, the illusions in uh, with the gospel. And for the first time, I understood the the message that it wasn't what I did that earned me salvation. It's what Christ did for me, and He gave an invitation uh, which was weird. It was a Presbyterian church, but he gave an invitation. I remember three of us (laughs) went forward, you know, and, uh, um, so, uh, he tricked me into the kingdom, you know, (laughs) there you go. I was going to say,
0: I don't know if I would have shared that now. I'm just on an apologetics uh, (laughs) podcast, but
1: so, uh, yeah, I didn't grow too much spiritually during my teens. Uh, I went to a Christian university. Um, man, I was planning on going to, uh, just a, a state university and, uh, you know, being a music major, specializing in jazz, I played saxophone. My objective was to be a professional musician. But, um, my parents asked me if I wanted to go to Liberty University or check it out for college for a weekend. And I want don't, I don't, I don't want to go there, but yeah, I'll check it out. And I went down and wow, the warm environment. I mean, I'd been in public schools my whole life and the warm Christian environment there was just, uh, it's like, wow, I, I have to go here. So, um, yeah. um, so that's where I went, um, I uh, finished up my, uh, my uh, bachelor's in, in applied music, but I was just growing so close to the Lord during that time, and I wanted to get deeper and deeper in the Word, so I decided to, uh, I wanted to, to learn Greek, and uh, so I went for a master's degree in New Testament studies, just specialized in Greek was my main thing, but toward the end of my degree, I just started questioning whether Christianity was true wasn't anything I was really learning. It was just a matter of, well, it's brought up in a Christian family. Maybe that's why I'm a Christian. Um, I think I've got this relationship with God, but maybe people of other religions think the same thing. How do I know what I believe is true? And, um, you know, apologetics, uh, it was, I had no use for it until I needed it. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, someone introduced me to Gary Habermas and he turned me on to a lot of different resources and so that just became a passion mm-hmm. of mine and got me involved in it. I never thought I'd go for a, a doctorate, um, but um, I, I ended up doing that uh, just because I, I, I wanted to get deeper and, and learn more and more, and um, went through a period of, of serious questioning of my faith when I was in my doctoral program, worked through it, and so, um, yeah, so this has just yeah. become a passion in my life. and. I agree with you. If, if Jesus rose from the dead, we can know Christianity is true, period, and there's nothing that changes that.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so you, you mentioned something that I say kind of often on here, is that most of the apologists I know, and I'm not going to throw myself in, in that camp, but uh, this is how I became familiar with apologetics as well, was through what I call apologetics by necessity. Uh, I didn't have any other choice. It was either I've got, I, it, I could no longer um, muster up Ah, uh, blind faith or or something like that there's either answers or I'm out is yeah. what it really came down to and well I mean I obviously I've, I feel like I found some answers um but uh take us through kind of that period of doubt I think this is important for Christians you know um dealing with doubt or just admitting that you even have doubts but what specific doubts were you having at the time whenever you uh, as you said you had a period of questioning
1: Yeah well, the first one, the first, I've had several periods of doubt, to be honest with you. Yes. The first period of doubt toward the end of my graduate studies, it, it was just, it was the first time I'd ever really doubted uh, the Christian faith. And it's, well, I can remember walking into Gary Habermas's uh, office and talking to him and he says, well, wh- what are you thinking? And I said, well, how do we know Jesus really rose from the dead rather than he was just an alien playing a joke on us? And he said... <laughs> all right <laughs> he said well we'll call this the cosmic joke hypothesis right and yeah. so we kind of we discussed that for a little and i felt pretty good you know walking out of his office but then later on you know i just started to doubt some things i i had this view of of a very um you know a high view of scripture i believe that it's god's word his inerrant word divinely inspired everything's true in it and um you know when I'm out in the, the real world and I'm hearing objections, you know, well Matthew, Mark, and John didn't read the Gospels, and what about all these contradictions in them and all this kind of stuff? And uh, you know, it it really rocked my world, um, and and that started, you know, that really drove me deeper into apologetics and 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 some things like that. So. um and then later on as i'm doing my doctoral studies it's not a ma- it wasn't a matter of any naturalistic or alternative hypothesis to the resurrection it was mat- it was a matter of um well there are smarter people than me that disagree a lot of other people disagree they 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 look at the same data they just don't agree am i missing something here um and then it's you know, when occasionally now when I experience doubts, it's a it's they're emotional doubts. They're not intellectual doubts. It's kind of like, well, what if? Mm-hmm. And the way I describe it when I lecture now is, I'll be all, up on a stage and I'll say, you know, a lot of times when you get on a, a, a stage of a big church, uh, they've got their lighting all set up and and so they have these little markers on the stage that people in the audience don't see. They're just little pieces of masking tape or something, and they'll tell the speaker, well, stay, you know, on this side of this little piece of tape because this is where the lighting is. If you go outside, you know, the lighting's not gonna hit you, it's not gonna look good. So um, so I'll just say, well, okay, I, I can stay within this space, it's pretty easy. I mean, let's say it's, it's just uh, six feet, one, you know, one way, uh, front to back. And let's say that that lane extends from the side, one side of the stage to the other, well, I could stay on that really easy. I could I could walk backwards. I could run backwards. I could do cartwheels on the stage. <laughs> uh, well, at least I used to be able to. You know, <laughs> you know I may not want to try it now. No. Um, but but you know, I, I could do it. I, I could do it blindfolded. I could walk backward and stay in that. But you take that same kind of uh, of um, of spacing. You know, six feet wide. Make a plank six feet wide and extend it thousand feet above the ground between two skyscrapers and say, okay, now I want you to walk from one end to the other. Well, technically I know I can do it. It shouldn't be a problem at all, but you're going to have a hard time getting me out on that thing. Um, you know, because what if, and it's like the consequences of not being able to do it are so scary that, you know, it, it really makes you doubt. It makes you worry. So You know, I look at the evidence and I say, well, the evidence certainly points to the resurrection of Jesus. No question about that. But what if I'm wrong? Um, What if another religion is correct? Or what if Christianity is false and there's a different way to get to heaven and I missed out? Mm -hmm. What if my biases prevent me from discovering truth and it costs me eternity? That's the kind of stuff that haunts me sometimes and causes doubt but it's emotional doubt it's not intellectual doubt
0: Mm -hmm. well thanks for being honest about it and uh yeah i i guess i completely agree but uh okay let's get into uh the resurrection and the evidence for it so let's just you know let's just say we're in everyday conversation here and i'm somebody that does not believe that jesus rose from the dead how would you go about trying to convince me
1: well, I'm going to realize I, I have limited time, right? So oh, I'm going yeah. To, so try uh, to make yeah. it as 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 simple and and just say I'll, I'll give you some things and then we can unpack them as as you For like. Sure. So say, okay. Well, here's something that virtually every scholar who studies the subject agrees upon. You know, mm-hmm. even skeptics, um, and that is that shortly after Jesus' death, his disciples were claiming that Jesus had been raised from the dead and had appeared to them. Virtually everyone agrees on. In fact. Virtually everyone agrees that they had experiences that led them to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't even have to go that far. I can just say, look, everybody seems to agree that they were at least claiming. Mm -hmm. You can say they were lying, hallucinating, whatever, but they're at least claiming that Jesus rose from the dead and, and appeared to them. Are you fine with that? You want me to give evidence for it, or can we move on from there?
0: So, whenever you say everyone, uh, virtually everyone agrees with this. Are you talking about yeah. historians in general, or are you talking about New Testament scholars, or both? Yeah, both. If You're
1: talking about professional historians who have actually looked into this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, New Testament scholars uh, who have actually looked into the issue, um, you know, written on the issue because it's something that it's kind of like this uh, scholars have opinions on a lot of things okay but if it's nothing that they've studied really given enough study to their 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 views aren't really valuable they're mm-hmm. not significant unless they have you know either specialized in it or spent enough time to get a really good grasp on it right um so i mean if you ask me to comment on archaeological stuff i can it's just not lame. Mm-hmm. it's not something i've really given myself to um, you know, I might be able to comment on a number of theological issues related to the New Testament, but, you know, I'm not an expert in a lot of the theological issues. I focus on the historical stuff. So, right. yeah, I'm referring to historian-minded. Okay,
0: cool. okay, so, so first yeah. point is the majority agree that— Almost everyone. Almost, you're, yeah, you're not going to m- find
1: a fl- few flakes, right? Yeah, yeah. But almost everyone does. Agrees that the— um, Disciples the were early... claiming Jesus rose and appeared to them. I mean, first of all, you got Paul.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and, you know, there's 13 letters in the New Testament attributed to him, of which almost all scholars acknowledge that uh, they're in agreement on at least seven of them, you know, that he wrote those seven. There's the disputes about the other six. Um, but virtually everyone agrees on those seven. So you can just take those seven, like 1 Corinthians, where Paul is claiming that Jesus appeared to him. Mm-hmm. All right. And he's saying that the disciples were saying the same thing. Yeah. In Galatians he says he goes back to Jerusalem and meets with Peter, James, and John, the lead apostles, and they've certified he's proclaiming what they're what, what he's proclaiming what they're preaching. Mm-hmm. Death, burial, resurrection, and appearances of Jesus. So so you've got Paul, you've got oral tradition that's peppered throughout Paul's undisputed letters, like in First Corinthians fifteen, three through seven, where, yeah. you know, Paul's getting this from the Jerusalem apostles and things. So you got this oral tradition. You got the Acts sermon summaries that, that contains the kerygma, the proclamation of the apostles. You know, mm-hmm. you can go to Clement of Rome and Polycarp, and they're basically saying that Paul's preaching what mm-hmm. they're preaching and things like this. So um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it, you know, John. Most scholars do believe that if John's not one of Jesus' disciples, um, John's primary witness was one of Jesus' disciples. Right. And most scholars do think that. Mark's primary witness was the Apostle Peter. So you got claims of resurrection there. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's almost beyond doubt, beyond dispute, that Jesus' disciples are making such a claim. For sure. Okay. So it's point, like, what do you do with
0: that? Right. So point number one, and then obviously it seems like you're going to build a cumulative case here. So what would point number two be?
1: Well, you got to say, well, did he appear to them or not? Right. <laughs> you know, there's no other option. Yeah. They're making a claim he appeared to them. He either did or he didn't. Well, if he didn't appear to them, what well, what's the deal here? Mm-hmm. Well, did they think he did, or did they really not think he did? Mm-hmm. Well, if they didn't think he did, that means they were lying, right? Right. Or they were using it in some other sense, like a metaphor. Mm-hmm. So for that, I would say you know, virtually everyone today agrees that they weren't lying about it because we've got enough records to show, ancient records, at least um, 11 ancient sources that tell us that the disciples were willing to suffer, they were willing to die, and at least some of them did die as, as Christian martyrs for the gospel proclamation. And so the chances that all of them were dying for a known lie or were willing to die and suffered for a known lie, that's extremely unlikely. Right. So hardly anyone today thinks that they were lying. I, I don't know of anyone today that thinks they were lying, scholars. Right. So the other thing would be is, uh, well, if they really didn't think that he rose, um, but they were claiming he did, well, they were using it as a metaphor. So, you know, Jesus... Um, teaching still live on today right but um you know that's that's not what paul was teaching paul says basically if christ has not been raised we're not going to be raised and the christian life is not worth living that makes absolutely no sense Mm -hmm. if if uh if they're meaning in a metaphorical sense and then you look at how the skeptics interpreted the christians Uh, they said the disciples stole the body they said the gardener reburied the body um They said, Jesus faked his death. Well, that's all to account for an empty tomb and things like this. Mm -hmm. Um, So if the Christians meant it as metaphor, they were communicating it in the worst possible way because all the skeptics of which we're aware interpreted them as making a claim that it was a historical event. And then when the Christians responded, they defended that it was a historical event. Mm -hmm. So there's really nothing here that would lead us to believe that the disciples claimed it, he didn't rise from the dead. And um or I'm sorry. They they claimed he appeared to them and they really didn't think that he appeared to them. Right. Yeah. It has to be that they really believed he appeared to them.
0: Okay. So we've gotten that he he really did or that they really did believe it, which isn't exactly the same thing as saying it actually happened. Is that it's is not, that a that's a fair distinction?
1: Yeah, it's not the same thing to say it happened. It's just saying they, they actually believed he rose from the dead.
0: Yeah, okay. So then how do we move in this conversation with a skeptic or, or with someone that's not a Christian uh, from from making that claim that, well, the earliest disciples really did believe? How do we move from that to it did actually happen?
1: Well, you got to look at some things here and you say, well, what's the best explanation? All right, so if if... If he didn't appear to them, but he really believed it, what are you looking at? Well, the most common objection or answer to that would be hallucinations.
0: That's the most common?
1: Uh, yeah, that's the most common. Well, yeah, I, always,
0: the, I always find uh, that the easiest one to write off.
1: <laughs> oh, I agree. That's, but I it, it really is family. the most
0: common? like
1: Even by, by scholars. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them were called visions, okay? <laughs> and what they mean by that is subjective visions— um, cause it's, it's, it's almost like an elusive term. They're not saying hallucinations because that's too easy to be caught on. But when you, when you actually get down to it and say, okay, well, there are really only kind of two kinds of v- visions here. You've got subjective visions, which would be like a hallucination. Nothing objective is happening here. It's something that's just going on in their head. And the other is it's an objective vision, which means it is an actual event, even if it's not occurring in space time. So uh, if you're claiming it's a vision, so that'd be like an out-of-body experience or, or maybe something like Paul uh, uh, experienced. It's a, it's an out, according to Acts, it would be an objective vision because not only did Paul see it, but so did some of the others. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, of course, it could have been an event in space-time, you know, but Jesus, is, is this bright light comes out of heaven, and it would appear since the others, according to Acts, saw the light— and they actually heard the voice, then that would be an objective experience. An objective vision, though, would be something like Peter um, in, what is it, Acts chapter 10, when he Go has ahead. his vision from heaven. It's a real vision revealing to him actual things that are happening. It's not a hallucination. Um, it's, it's, it's an objective event. So they would say you know, a vision, well, what do you mean? Objective or subjective? Because if it's objective, then Jesus is alive after death. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's subjective, it's a hallucination. So they'll all say, well, yeah, it's subjective, of course. And then you point out about hallucinations. Well, there's been a lot of research been done on it over the last uh, century, more than a century. And there are different ways to experience a hallucination. You can have a visual hallucination or an auditory hallucination Uh, something where you smell something that's not really there taste something that's not really there have a sense of motion like when you wake up in the morning uh, because you had a sense of falling Mm -hmm. it's called a kinesthetic hallucination happens a lot Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) or a tactile hallucination you know when you thought your uh, cell phone vibrated in your pocket because you got a text and you open it and it's like nothing yeah the other night I woke
0: up going like this I don't even know what I was dreaming about or whatever but I just threw my
1: arm up like that freaked me out <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, only the the group most likely to experience a hallucination are senior adults bereaving the loss of a loved one. But even at that, you only have an average of seven percent who have a visual hallucination of that loved one. Um, when we look at the reports, the earliest reports, like in First Corinthians 15, he appeared to the twelve. He appeared to more than five hundred. He appeared to all the apostles. So at least you got the twelve. And all the apostles, that would be 100%, Mm -hmm. not 7%. Not 7%.
0: And um, they weren't that elderly. Do you know what the statistics are for younger people that
1: are bereaved? Um, That's a great question. They haven't done research on that. And um, I've asked some folks that have, uh, like uh, Larry and Ailman, who co-authored... the book, Hallucinations, the Science of mm-hmm. Idiosyncratic Perception, published by the American Psychological Association. I think it was 2007, something like that. Um, and they, they, I asked one of the co-authors, and he told me that he was not aware of any studies um, that would show that there would be a difference. Mm-hmm. There might be. Right. But we just don't know.
0: Yeah, the only fear is that it would be higher, not that that would even necessarily change anything, but I would yeah. guess it I don't know anything about this sort of
1: stuff, but, but uh, it's certainly not going to be 100%. Right. No. You know. Yeah. So that'd be one reason to reject it. Another thing would be group hallucinations. You've got at least three group appearances in that first report. Yeah, this really to seems to be the
0: defeater as far as I can tell, right? Yeah. I mean, just like no questions asked. That's why I've said I find it so easy to Dismiss. that could was surprised that among scholars it's the most common uh, because of you know what you're saying right now about group hallucinations but sorry for interrupting go ahead
1: no not at all but, uh, feel free anytime so um, yeah because hallucinations are like dreams in so far as there's no external reality to them right it's going in your head so I can't wake up my wife in the middle of the night and tell her about a dream that I'm having in Hawaii that I'm there and to go back to sleep join me in my dream and we can mm-hmm. have a free yeah. vacation you know can't do that because it's it's going on in my head only so you can't share a dream you can't share a hallucination um and yet you've got three group appearances at at least three group appearances of jesus to his disciples um you know paul was not grieving jesus death he was glad jesus was dead and so you wouldn't expect paul to experience a hallucination of jesus that's a good point yeah Um, If the tomb was empty, I think there's good evidence for the empty tomb, but if the tomb was empty, hallucinations don't explain how the tomb got empty. So Mm -hmm. there really is, and a hallucination really doesn't lead to the belief that the person's grave is empty, right? Right. Um, So uh, like my dad, when my mom died a couple months later, he experienced a visual hallucination of my mom in the middle of the night, but Mm -hmm. it didn't lead him to the belief that if he went to her grave, her body would be gone.
0: Right. It's one Um, thing. Yeah. I mean- because that would be our first assumption. I just hallucinated. You know, if, right. if you saw that, if that happened to me, uh, my first thought would be, which actually is the first thought of the disciples, or um, their actual first thought is not resurrection in the Gospels. Their first thought is someone stole them. That's what Mary, I believe Mary says. What, what have you done with them? They, she thought yeah. that they stole the body. She didn't think she was hallucinating. So it's a bit, a bit of a stretch here. But I would assume that I was hallucinating, just like Mary assumed that the body was stolen, because that's what normally happens. That would be the usual way that that would happen. Uh, so I, it, that's kind of a, a point to be made in in um, for making this case is that well, they didn't even assume to start with that it was a resurrection. It took further evidence to convince
1: them. That's correct. So, I mean, really, that only leaves one option now. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you can take, yeah. They believed he rose from the dead because, oh, you could say, well, (laughs) another option is he didn't die and then he appeared. Mm -hmm. But then, really, if he'd been scourged and crucified, I mean, think of what he would look like.
0: Yeah. um, There's there's only one that, uh, it doesn't get left out. I have heard some people treat it. Um, but it is a lot of times left out, and and that that is just that they were outright mistaken, it, that Jesus was crucified and put in the tomb, and then they saw somebody else, like you know, on the road to Emmaus or something like that, and that w- they just thought that that was Jesus. It wasn't really Jesus.
1: Yeah. Except that wouldn't account for Paul, right? No. And it no, wouldn't or the for... empty tomb. Yeah wouldn't account for the empty tomb. It wouldn't account for why James, the skeptical brother of Jesus, be, you know, uh, converted and became a follower after his death Mm -hmm. when he wasn't all the way up to the time of his death. And then he actually goes to his own death as a martyr, because he won't deny that his brother's the Messiah, Mm -hmm. um, the risen Messiah and Lord. I mean, that's just, that's amazing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so Yeah, that just doesn't work. No,
0: yeah, for sure. Uh, i got some more questions for you real quick. I want to take a break and say uh, thank you and give a shout-out to our patron supporters. Thanks so much for your support, guys. I really appreciate it. I want to give a special thank you to Jonathan, our patron of the week. Jonathan, thanks so much for your support. If you are listening, I I know what you've always dreamed of, what you've always wanted. You've always wanted to hear me give you a shout-out on the show well, today's your lucky day. You can go become a patron supporter by following the link in the description and becoming a supporter of Help Me Believe so that we can continue to have discussions like we are today with Dr. Michael Lycona, who is the co-author of The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And we've been discussing uh, the resurrection, and uh, we kind of just let this conversation flow. We've talked about positive points, and we've talked about objections that have been raised. I had this all out neat, now here we are having a nice conversation all out of order. Uh, but this is really great. I'm really enjoying it. So let's continue the conversation. Uh, we, we talked about hallucination. Um, you mentioned earlier, and so this is kind of go off topic of what we were just discussing, but you did mention earlier 1 Corinthians 15.3. I think that's the verse, the specific verse or the beginning of the the verses that I'm uh, talking about here. Where um, So in, in my dialogues with skeptics, whether online or whatever, in discussing the resurrection and trying to make the uh the, The five minimal facts, or is that how? Yeah, uh, and and giving that argument for the resurrection. A lot of times they don't necessarily object um, with the objections that we've been kind of discussing here. Sometimes they just go, they go straight for the dating of these things and say, no, the resurrection was, you know, actually you know perpetrated later on, and and they'll hit me with questions that, as a non-technical historian or, or or New Testament historian, it's like well, when it comes to dates and stuff, I just kind of punt to these guys because I don't know why the dates are there. So how do we know that uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.3 and those verses uh, really do trace back to just uh, w- like uh, three to five years from the cr- crucifixion or something like that?
1: Yeah, well, some would say three to five years. Uh, you've got, uh, I think it's Robert Funk of the Jesus Seminar, Garrett Ludeman. Um, I, I don't know where Funk was. He was pretty much a skeptic, though, and I know uh, Ludeman – was an atheist uh, New Testament scholar, and they both put it, I think, within one to two years of Jesus' crucifixion. And then you got James D.G. Dunn, who's kind of a moderate conservative scholar, and he, places, he says we can be entirely confident that it derived within six months. Now, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know how they get to those dates. Um, they don't provide any reasons and as much as I'd like to say, hey, look, these are skeptics who are even saying this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's always possible, but I, I don't think it's proven. So here's the approach I take, Hayden. Okay. Um, we know, you know, most scholars will date First Corinthians written somewhere between the years 52 and 55, maybe 56. Okay. And they seem to agree. And they do this based on uh, the book of Acts, other of Paul's letters like Galatians and um, – and they, they are able to establish a timeline of some sort. So they'll say 1 Corinthians was written somewhere between, let's say, 52 and 56. And Paul establishes the church in Corinth in the year 51. So he says, I delivered to you what I first received. So uh, I delivered to you of first importance what I first received, what I received. So and then he gives them that oral tradition. Christ died, was buried, was raised, he appeared, and then the different appearances. So he delivered it to them in 51, and of course he would have had to receive it before then, right? Right. So when did he receive it, and who gave it to him? Well, he doesn't tell us. But what he does tell us is that he had met with Peter three years after his conversion, and spent 15 days with him. And the Greek word Paul uses there is hysteresi, we get the English word history from right. that. So Paul is visiting <laughs> Peter, meeting with him to get kind of a history. Fill, fill me in all, on Jesus. I know some, I, what he's teaching, because I used to think it was heresy. Um, but but tell me about your experience. Hey, did he really walk on water? Did you walk on water, Peter? What was that like? Yeah. Um, and, and things like this. So he's learning all about these different stories. Um, and then he says 14 years later, he goes back and he runs his gospel message past the Jerusalem apostles uh to make sure he's preaching what they're preaching okay and in the meantime he goes on a couple of missionary journeys one of them is with Barnabas another is with Silas so it's like okay um did he get it from Barnabas did he get it from Silas did he get it from Peter in his first visit did he get it from Peter James and John the second visit to Jerusalem did he get it from Ananias immediately after his conversion uh, we don't know he could have gotten it anytime the, the oral formula, that mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the content of it, what that oral formula proclaims, well, he would have gotten that, of course, from Peter, and and probably even before then. He may have even known the content before then because he didn't believe what the gospel was, that they were out there proclaiming. And we see what they were proclaiming in the sermon summaries in the book of Acts mm-hmm. and in this kerygma and first, in this... Oral tradition in First Corinthians fifteen three through seven. So, um, you know, Paul knows that this is what the apostles are preaching. Mm-hmm. The format, the the form of, of that he receives it in the creed. Who knows when he, re- he received that? Right. But so, it was sometime before 51. Yeah, I was going
0: to say it seems like the crux of the matter is when was Corinthians written? Once you can establish that, then you can obviously say, well, he obviously, re- like you said, received this before then. And then, you know, we can look to the book of Acts to see more of a timeline of when Paul was converted. And, um, you know, like you said, there's multiple different options there that you could take. But I think the most important thing is just to say... Um, he received he received this very early and directly from the apostles obviously it was with if it was even if he received it in 50 it would be like well that's still within the lifetime of the apostles right right so right. i mean still I mean, within
1: their lifetime and of course he would it still obvi- it's not like he heard about jesus death burial, and resurrection when he received that right. formula right yeah he knew about it even before a christian
0: yeah yeah obviously so yeah i mean so that's, I see what, how that works now. Uh, let, let's move on to um, a specific uh, a person that I believe that you have debated before. You have debated Bart Ehrman uh, before um, probably multiple times. Um, six times. Six times. There you go. So I know I've watched at least one or two um, um, online, but uh, his, his position on this has changed Maybe multiple times. I don't know. Over time, on on which uh, ob- ob- objection or which uh, critical theory that he um, agrees with, or or is uh, or is in favor of. What what is his current position on the resurrection? What is, is he in 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 the camp with the other uh, scholars who think this was a hallucination? Or
1: yeah, I would say the last well, the last time we actually debated on the resurrection would have been. Um you know, or that we had a discussion on it would have been 2011, I believe. Yeah. Um, so that was eight years ago. Um, I don't know where he is on it now, but he seems like he's consistently, at least the time before then and up to then, has uh, said that he he thinks that they had visions of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and in our debate, when I, I said, you know, clarify that, are you referring to a subjective or object? Do you think it was a hallucination? And I remember him saying, well, you know, hallucinations kind of a pejorative term. And um, and I said, well, no, not anymore. Not in that field, not in the the field of the mental health. So um, he said, yeah, okay, well, hallucinations. So that's what he thinks that it it was. And he'll say, well, we know that some of them, how many of them had it. He doesn't. He says, I don't know. Were there any group experiences, uh, group hallucinations? He says, I don't know. Did all of them see it, or just some of them? He says, I don't know. But he admits that at least some of the apostles had them. Now, Gary Habermas, who is up on where scholars stand on this stuff more than anyone, he says the majority of scholars, even skeptics, will even agree that they had these experiences in group settings. But Erman's not willing to grant that.
0: Man, that, that's crazy how um, revealing or... Uh... How much you have to seed in order to take that position or it, it seems like that to me like you just seeded so much, especially the ones who are granting group hallucinations is like yeah. we have no zero evidence that group hallucinations are even possible, but this is the the length to which you 're willing to go to you know deny a, a you know supernatural intervention here with an actual resurrection that 's quite telling um, and it should be encouraging for anybody listening that the the evidence for the resurrection is quite strong. Um, but what is a, a strong point? I mean, obviously none are going to be that strong, a counterpoint, excuse me, that you've heard from a skeptic, whether it be Bart Ehrman, or, or maybe there's a scholar that's, you know, even, um, a skeptical scholar that's even, you know, better than he is, or however you want to word that, that you know of that maybe the public doesn't, uh, and some objections that they've made that, that, you know, what's a pretty good objection or an, the best objection you've heard, I guess, would be the best way to ask that Honestly,
1: <laughs> I don't think that there are any good objections, right. but if I had to say what's the best one, I'd go with the one by Geza Vermesh, the, the late New Testament scholar, Jewish New Testament scholar, who did not think Jesus rose from the dead, but he just said, well, there are no good explanations. We just have to throw our hands up and say, I don't know what happened. Something yeah. happened. I don't know what it was.
0: Mm-hmm. So you know, you either go with a, an agnostic position like that, or um, you know, man, I don't know about any good ones either. But uh, some people just say, well, whatever happened, it certainly wasn't a resurrection, as we know. You know, all seven billion of us on this planet are going to die, and none of us are going to literally rise from the dead. Which I don't know is true or not. I don't have that kind of knowledge. But um, that's more yeah. of a that's more of a a, a presupposition than anything. But
1: yeah, they would say something like David Hume would say, and you know he would say human testimony can be very reliable, but um, it's not always reliable. It's certainly not reliable 100% of the time. Far from it. And that's the evidence we have for the resurrection. So you, it could be good evidence, but it's not necessarily. Um, and then he says the side against the resurrection, you've got things such as um, our what we notice is that when people die, they stay dead. And we, we observe this with an exceptionless regularity, right? So, and we understand why people don't come back to life. So when you look at the evidence that's offered by human testimony, which is not perfect, um, there, there, there are plenty of exceptions to the reliability of human testimony. But then you look at the observation that when people die, they stay dead. They don't come back to life. Uh, And we observe that with an exceptionless regularity, then you weigh these two and you say, well, okay, The, the side of people coming, not coming back from the dead outweighs human testimony. But where Hume goes wrong on this is what science tells us. What we observe is that when people die, they stay dead. They don't come back to life by natural causes. Right. But that's not to say anything about if god exists and wanted to raise jesus so the example i'll give is hey you know what's what's the the probability of someone walking on water um you know you can take everybody in the world and try to uh, see if they can walk on water in a pool a lake a pond the ocean something like they're all going to sink and if it came down to the last person who's a three-year-old boy and i said here give me your hands and we're at a swimming pool. He gives him his hands. I hold him over the pool. I support his weight. And I walk along the pool as he walks on water. Well, seven billion people unable to walk on water tells us nothing pertaining to whether this boy could walk on water. Mm-hmm. You say, Mike, wait a minute. You cheated because you were an external agent assisting him. That's exactly right. That's what we're claiming. And, yeah. and, and seven billion people unable to walk on water unassisted tells us absolutely nothing about whether someone could walk on water Assisted, mm-hmm. And in the same way, 100 billion people dying and staying dead who don't come back from the dead unassisted tell us absolutely nothing about whether someone could come back from the dead assisted.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, so it's really presupposing naturalism. Exactly.
0: Well, well, I don't accept naturalism, so this isn't really you know, going to convince me. It would be just like if I just said, uh, how do you know God exists? Well, the Bible says so. Well, I don't, right. you know, the atheist doesn't believe that the Bible is God's word, which obviously would be circular reasoning, assuming that God exists. You know, you get the point. Well, they assume naturalism on these kind of um, objections to the resurrection. Well, if you're still listening, uh, thanks uh, so much for joining us. i got one more question for uh, Dr. Lycona uh, before we head into the bonus segment, so be sure to stick around uh, for the bonus segment. You can follow the Patreon link in the description below to to hear that or to watch that. Uh um Dr. Lykona, perhaps there's somebody uh, listening right now who is having doubts about maybe they're a Christian who's having doubts about the resurrection. Maybe we just caused them to have some doubts about the resurrection. No it's really not. but uh, you know, maybe there's uh, even some skeptics listening who are you know obviously not believers. Uh, what, what, in just uh, you know a few words, what would you uh, say to these two parties before you go?
1: Well, I would say, you know, when we're talking about historical evidence and making a historical case, we have to have reasonable expectations. There is no way to prove something beyond all doubt, not in history. Um, You can't prove that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon beyond all doubt. You can't even prove um, that we all weren't all just created five minutes ago with food in our stomachs of meals we never ate and memories of events that never occurred. Um, you, you can't prove beyond all doubt that we're not brains in vats somewhere just being stimulated by bad scientists to have the perceptions we're having. Mm-hmm. So we, we go with what seems to be the best explanation and it's going to be no different with the resurrection of jesus we have to have reasonable expectation and we look in yeah we can't get in a time machine return to the past and verify our conclusions but we can look at the data we can weigh the evidence and say what's the best explanation and when we do this there really is only one explanation that can account adequately for all the data and that's the resurrection hypothesis so the, the best thing, if you're skeptic, you know, you can be honest and just say, well, I still don't, just don't believe it. It's not enough for me. But, you know, th- that's a better way than trying to just make up some kind of a lame excuse to, to account for it. Um, but I'd say if you're really looking for truth, then look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, because if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity's true, period.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I I really appreciate you coming on again and and taking the time. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, One of my favorite authors, especially on the subject, but just in general. And so I appreciate uh, appreciate you coming on and doing this.
1: Thanks, Hayden. I appreciate it.